You're listening to a Roddenberry Podcast. This episode of Mission Log is brought to you by listeners like you, supporters on Patreon. Join today at patreon.com slash mission log. Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast, episode 406, The Reckoning. Welcome into another episode of Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast. I'm John Champion. And I'm Norman Lau. Each week on Mission Log, we study the ancient texts, translating them for a new audience, which basically means we watch Star Trek one episode at a time and then talk about it, seeing if the prophets left us some nuggets of wisdom along the way. This week, The Reckoning. Uh, I reckon it's the one where uh, there's a reckoning. Uh, but but not just any reckoning, it's the reckoning. So get ready for that. Well, I reckon so. So before we get into all that, I reckon and I'll tell everyone how to reach us. Mission Log is a conversation about Star Trek, and that's why we want to hear from you. Use Mission Log Pod to give us a like and a share on Facebook and Twitter. Then follow and rate us at Apple Podcasts to help others find the show. You can call us on Skype at Mission Log Pod or by dialing 323-522-5641. Send us an email at missionlog at roddenberry.com, and remember, we may use your comments on an upcoming episode of Mission Log. And I reckon now's the time for the trivia with John Champion. I reckon I'll get right into it. So the story is credited to Harry Worksman and Gabrielle G. Stanton, and uh, here we have a duo who both have their first professional writing credit on this very episode of DS9. It's their only track, uh, but they both racked up an impressive number of credits as writers and producers ever since. Uh, Shows like Castle, Grey's Anatomy, Time After Time, The Invisible Man. And since they are both part of that extended Star Trek universe of fans and professionals, it's fun that they are both in the movie Free Enterprise, essentially as themselves. We have a teleplay by David Weddle and Bradley Thompson. You know that twosome that we've talked about. Uh, We recently covered their story contribution in Inquisition, uh, but here the team of David and Bradley get the teleplay credit only. It was collaborative, though. David and Bradley had already been kicking around a similar idea, and they were unaware of the pitch from Harry and Gabrielle. So this was the compromise, to buy the pitch and then assign it to the writers who were already working on the idea. Makes sense. The episode was directed by Jesus Salvador Trevino, and this is the last of the three episodes Jesus contributed on DS9. Previously, we talked about his directorial work on The Begotten and Sons and Daughters, and we'll catch him again on Voyager. And just a couple of fun story notes here. Uh, One of the original drafts had Kira and Kai Wynn as the two possessed bodies fighting it out and fighting for much longer than the sequence that we have here. It was deemed entirely too expensive and too time-consuming, so after the change was made to have Jake in the battle, the effect sequences were toned down and minimized a bit. 
And let's look at our guest stars. We're pretty much focused on our own crew here, with the notable exception of Louise Fletcher back as Kai Wynn. And early on, we meet Coral, uh, something of a Bajoran monk, played by James Green. Talk about an extraordinary career. James made it all the way from starring on Broadway with Olivia de Havilland in Romeo and Juliet to playing Councilman Milden on Parks and Rec. And seriously, go look that up. He was on 18 episodes of that show and hilarious in all of them. Uh, You may even remember him as Uncle Mudri in Alien Nation. He also turns up in feature films like Road to Perdition and Patch Adams. This isn't our first time seeing him on Trek either. He was in one of my favorite TNG episodes, Who Watches the Watchers? And he will be back briefly in an episode of Voyager. Now, he passed away in 2018 at the age of 91, and in addition to his extensive career on stage and on screen, he also published a memoir called A View from the Wings in 2016. Oh, great. Kai wins in this one. I wonder if she started hiring a monk to follow her around with a jam box playing that. Ooh, child. Things are gonna get easier song. Spoiler. Things are not going to get easier. Prologue. The briefing today on DS9 is a mixed bag. The Dominion have made some headway toward Vulcan, but they've been pushed back by the Romulans near Benzar. Captain Sisko has other things on his mind, though. He and Jake and Kira will visit Bajor a little later to explore a cave where a mysterious ancient tablet has been found under one of their temples. The part of the ancient inscriptions they can make out spells Welcome Emissary, and when Sisko gets close to it, He has a vision of the prophets, as the people he's around now, warning him that the reckoning is coming. It will be the end, or the beginning, and when the vision is over, Sisko is thrown against a cave wall. Act 1. Waking up from his vision, Sisko tells the others about the reckoning. Coral, the monk, knows nothing about it, and he can't translate the rest of the tablet. In that case... Sisko will take it with him back to DS9, where he'll ask Dax to work on it, which he does, and Dax isn't exactly confident or thrilled at the prospect, but she'll get going. Not much time passes before DS9 has a special visitor. Oh, hello, Kai Wynn. She is not pleased. Well, about anything, really, but this time she's not happy that Sisko took it upon himself to take an ancient religious artifact up to the station without permission. That might be a sensitive topic since, you know, the Cardassians kind of did the same thing. Sisko has a trump card, though. He's the emissary, and he feels like the prophets wanted him to take it, so... That gives Kai Wen pause... The prophets have never spoken to her, so she has to take Sisko's word for it. She would never argue with the emissary over such things, except that's a lie. She totally goes over Sisko's head and complains to Starfleet. They tell Sisko he needs to return the tablet, but not until he gets Dax to speed up her work. There could be some valuable information in those inscriptions, and he wants to know what the prophets have in mind for Bajor. What Dax finds isn't exactly encouraging, though. The inscriptions so far read that the reckoning is close at hand, and the prophets will weep 
and their sorrow will consume the gateway to the temple, that gateway being Deep Space Nine. Act Two, word gets out fast. Odo, Worf, and Bashir talk over the relative accuracy of Bajoran prophecy, while Quark just laments how business is down. While Bashir thinks it's all just a laughing matter, they're all startled when the station shakes violently. There's a disturbance in the wormhole, another tremble in the station, and even Bashir looks worried. Odo and Kira discuss things over a meal. Well, Kira's meal. Odo doesn't really eat, remember? Kira expresses her need for faith in the prophecies, while Odo wants a more pragmatic answer, though he does say he has faith in her. That instability in the wormhole didn't just shake the station. Kai Wen reports to Captain Sisko that there are geologic and other disturbances on Bajor, all chalked up to the wormhole, and it's her opinion that the root cause is Sisko's stealing of the tablet. She insists that he return it, although he asks for more time with it. She's a step ahead, though, and First Minister Shakar is on her side, demanding its return. So Sisko agrees. He'll send it back in the morning. Oh, but not before Dax can give it another look and just work harder and faster. And now she can work from a hologram anyway. But she has made some progress that one of the inscriptions either means the Bajorans will suffer terribly or eat fruit, your pick. Kira tries to put things in perspective for Sisko. The Kai's resentment is probably rooted in a good deal of jealousy. Here he is, the outsider as emissary, while she's had this faith her whole life and never had an encounter with the prophets. He says he'll try to keep that in mind. Another disturbance, another rumbling, another passive-aggressive encounter between Kira and Kai Wen. But it's Jake Sisko, who is up late this night, confiding in his dad that he's a little worried about this emissary stuff. Like, remember those times he ended up in the infirmary having visions? Yeah, Jake doesn't want to go through seeing that happen to his father anymore. Please? Captain Sisko says he didn't ask for it, and... Uh, good talk, son. But Ben can't sleep at night, either. He wanders his way into the lab where the stone tablet is being kept, and in frustration at the prophets and their vague needs, he hurls the thing at a wall, cracking it into a million pieces... When he does, both blue and orange glowing mists escape from the shards of broken rock, making their way up and out through the station bulkheads. Act 3. Sisko tries to explain his actions to Odo and Dax. He had an uncontrollable urge. Got an urge, got a surge, and it's out of control. Yeah, 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 yeah. They can't find any evidence of an energy discharge coming from the stone, and yet, right then, DS9's power systems drain and surge a bit. You know who else is discharging some energy? Kai Wen, when she finds out what Captain Sisko did to that ancient artifact. She's furious and can't believe he would do such a thing to spite her. He says he didn't, though. It was the prophets guiding him, and she just needs to have faith, like he does, that he's being guided by them. Still, the situation on Bajor is looking more and more dire, and Kai Wen blames Sisko for it all. Before they can argue the point further, a call comes from Odo that he needs the captain on the promenade right away. There, standing in the doorway of the Bajoran temple, is Major Kira, but not herself, to be sure. 
There's wind, energy discharge, lightning coming from her hands, and stuff exploding all around her. Kira is possessed by one of the prophets, and she addresses Sisko that this vessel was willing. Now it's time for the reckoning. Act 4. So about this reckoning. Possessed Kira doesn't say too much other than that it's time for the end. Or the beginning. And she's waiting for Kostomojan, who... Kai Wen explains is the evil one, or to put it another way, a Pa Wraith banished from the Celestial Temple, or could it be Satan? The prophet, in corporeal form, awaits this evil entity, also in some corporeal form, to fight it out. If the good prophet wins, then it's a thousand years of peace, a golden age for Bajor. If the other one wins, then not that. And it's all going to go down right here on the promenade of this space station. She thanks Sisko for doing his job, summoning them, and when Kai Wen tries to step in for a little FaceTime with the Prophet, it's not happening. The wind machines are turned off, and Kira just stands there like a statue waiting for her enemy to show up. And ops, Sisko makes the call to abandon the station. This fight is going to take place whether they want it or not, and he has to protect his people. Dax does have an option, though. They could flood the area with chroniton particles, which would drive out the wormhole aliens. They can't stand the stuff. Not enough to kill them, just enough to protect Kira and not make DS9 a total war zone. Sisko refuses, though. This is something that needs to happen, and it's the price they have to pay for asking the Prophets to protect Bajor from the invading Dominion fleet. On the way out, Odo assures Worf that Kira wants this. It's part of her faith, even though Worf admits that he doesn't think he could do the same thing for Dax. People are leaving DS9 in droves, except for Kai Wen and a last group of Bajorans offering up prayers until Sisko can convince them otherwise. The Kai is full of faith that the good prophets will win. And just think, when that golden age occurs, there will be no need for Kais, or Vedics, or even emissaries. Saving us from another passive-aggressive argument, possessed Kira stirs back to life to announce that the evil one has chosen a vessel, and that vessel is Jake Sisko. Act 5. Lightning, fire, sparks, cue the wind machines. The possessed Kira and Jake stare each other down while aiming blue and orange energy beams at each other. Dax is saying they need to get out of there, but they could activate the chroniton particles. Sisko again refuses. This has to play out, according to him. The prophets will protect Jake because they will. Now everyone else needs to leave. With the last of the personnel leaving, Dax rounds up any stragglers to get to the last ship remaining, but not making the trip is Kai Wynn, who sneaks off when Dax is distracted. Cut to the promenade. Kira, Jake, both possessed, both shooting more energy beams at each other, while everything around them sparks and explodes. But then they both scream out, as we see that Kai Wynn has activated the chroniton particles, thus ending the supernatural battle. Captain Sisko runs over to Jake, knocked out from the ordeal, just like Major Kira. They'll both survive. It'll take longer for Jake, though, who will need a few days' rest in the infirmary. When Sisko goes to see his son, he's racked with guilt. But Jake says 
He knows that no matter what, he knew at the time that the Pa Wraith couldn't be allowed to win, even if he had to die in the process. They embrace. Odo and Kira have a similar reunion. She thanks him for respecting her faith. He says he wouldn't have minded if the prophets had picked someone else. Finally, Kira escorts Kai Wen back to her shuttle, and Wen says she did the right thing by saving Bejor and the station and Sisko's son. Oh yeah? Not so fast. Kira calls her out. What Kai Wen did, she did because she couldn't stand to see an outsider in a display of faith greater than her own. So yeah, Kai Wen has endangered all of them again by stopping the prophets from what they needed to do. And now we have no idea how that will play out for Bejor. The end. John. Yes. My child. Oh, oh. So well done. That write-up was so wonderful. I'm surprised you wrote it so succinctly when you could have just gone to Wikipedia, the higher authority, and just copied it for yourself. But it must have been the will of the prophets. This is how it's going to be, huh? This is it. Yeah, now, now the skin is crawling. Up. Oh, ooh. All right, I'm in for it today. All right, man, let's uh, let's get going here. Right off the bat, hey, we're we're back to war, but wait, we'll save the war talk. Let's go see some ruins. I, I do like how we uh, how we just make that easy and quick transition, and I do like the shout out though to the uh, the Vulcans. And um, we haven't seen a good Ben site in a long, long time. I was a little disappointed we didn't get to see one here, but at least they got a shout out. Uh, so a lot of good name and location dropping in that teaser. Bravo. I also like how they referenced like the Dominion's strategy and their strongholds there and the, the locations that they've, um, that they've uh, acquired when they talked about Beta Z and the Argolis cluster. Because we've seen that happen. We saw the, I guess, the reference for Beta Z in, in the Pale Moonlight the Argolis cluster was even earlier, so I thought that was nice that they have this this callback to the progression of their war, so it feels like that there's an actual forward movement going on. Yeah, yeah, indeed. Um, I Oh, you know, I do have to say, like, it, it was interesting, that little moment between uh, Kira and Odo, because we are so many more steps now toward casual Friday Odo. Now, literally just after one episode of them kind of finding each other and deciding to make this happen. Uh, so Vic worked well. He did his job. And I, and I do like the way that they're playing it now. It, it's professional when they are professional, but they have this like playful, relaxed thing when they're with each other. It's a nice yeah. contrast and it just feels very real. I like it. I think there's something to be said about having actors and characters when they when they find that moment where they understand this is the motivation with characters and Renee and Nana as Odo and Kira when they press their nose yes. prosthetics together yeah. <laughs> right. it was I mean it was adorable yeah. I think that was something that both of them really know about their characters I'm sure that their makeup artists were probably not so excited about that because yeah. they probably had to reset their makeup after that but it yeah. was adorable it was. Totes, it was totes adorbs. Totes adorbs, man. Uh, now, look, I know that this would ruin the whole premise of the episode, but they just beamed up this 30,000-year-old stone. Like, the, this monk didn't say, hey, maybe you shouldn't do that. They just like, oh, okay, here, take it. They, they couldn't just, oh, I don't know, maybe make a holocopy the exact same way they did before, 
when Ben was spending all that time in the hollow suite with that obelisk. And um, also, while we're at it, they haven't let Majorans use their technology like maybe a tricorder or a library computer up until now. It just seems like could have saved a lot of time. But again, I know, I know that that kind of logic would ruin the story. Right. Well, obviously, the reason why this, your question, you know, uh, is a question is because of what happens later on. Because he has to have something solid to throw at the bulkhead. Exactly. Uh, but one of the things that I always look for um, as, as someone who's a fan of background scenes, to be honest with you, I wish that there was like a little bit more of, of kind of like strewn about equipment, you know, like pickaxes or machinery or anything like that that would show an active dig site like mm-hmm. in the process. Because it just like you had these wonderful lights. Everything was clean, but it's an active dig site. So I just wanted, I just wanted a little bit more world building in there that yeah. they just stopped all of a sudden because they found this particular slab and they said, nope, we have to have the emissary in there. I also kind of wanted Gandalf to show up and say, speak friend and enter so that the door would open <laughs> for Cisco, but we never got there. That would have been nice. Yes. Oh, Bajoran bats are a thing now, right? Yeah. Apparently they don't bite often. But do we call them Bajats or mm. Batjorans? Ooh, Batjorans. I like the sound of Bat Jorans because that 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 then builds our DS9 Batman 66 crossover that we've okay. been asking for for so long. Yeah. So we got Bat Jorans and then yeah. and said Robin, right? Yeah, right, right, right. Okay. Gotcha. Exactly. So you uh you opened it uh with your uh your your little <laughs> you knew you would get right under my skin with uh Kai Wen and uh Cisco's face palm. That is my face palm. That it's that perfect. when I hear that Kai Wen is coming, she doesn't even have to be on the screen yet. When I hear Kai Wen is here, it's like yeah, it, it happens to me. I think um, like you and everyone else in the audience are just like, Oh my god. Yeah, right. Really? Uh, oh no. How could this uh, day get any worse? Kai Wen's coming on the station. Yeah, really? Oh, just the anxiety really? goes yeah. yeah. But uh, so I love, you know, taking and I'm sure we'll come back to it, taking the stone is what the prophets want. Uh but but maybe not exactly, but this is a Again, the best just get out of jail free card. You just well, why did you take the stone? Ah, eh, the prophets wanted it. I didn't hear that. Yeah, but you're not talking to the prophets, <laughs> you <Yeah>. know. <laughs> Snap. And, yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and you know, look, Kai Wynn can have her objections, but the stone does have the emissary's name on it. Yeah. So you know, you got to at least give him credit for that. Yeah, I mean, if it said you know, welcome Kai, you're all over it, right? Mm-hmm. But you're, you're right, right, exactly. <laughs> you're not exactly. the emissary. Sorry, not yeah, sorry. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, you know, uh, Kai Wynn does say th- there's something that is a little inconsistent with this artifact because Corral said that we've tried and we can't translate it. Kai Wynn says that there are scholars on Bajor that can translate it. So which is it? Yeah, I yeah. You know, is, <laughs> right. is Kai Wynn playing at something here, which she usually is, or what's going on? I don't really get that, you know? Yeah. Yeah, I, I mean, look, Prime Directive does not apply here. Just give the people the tricorder, okay? Give somebody down there a tricorder and, mm-hmm. and the internet, okay? Oh, hey, I do love this little bit uh, that Dax says to Cisco, I remember when you used to call them wormhole aliens. Hey, Dax, I'm still here for you, okay? You I got need that conversation. Bit. You talk to me. <laughs> I got a whole bit on that later. Okay, yeah. good, good, yeah. good. And by the way, I just this was a character choice thing. I did feel like Dax's reaction to the tablet was just a little odd. I mean, 
like the thing that I love about Dax is that she shoots from the hip, but even her joking in this episode just feels really out of place. Like, like sarcastically blowing a kiss at Cisco in that moment. That was one of those that I was like, did I actually just see that? And then watching it again and like, yeah, it still doesn't play right. See, I, do, I did a double take on that too. And I kind of thought it was sweet really? in a weird way. Yeah. It, because it was out of character, but I'm just wondering if Terry just threw that in there as an improv and they yeah. just went with it. But yeah. it it was like characteristically out of place, but that's why I like it, I, I think. Okay. Fair enough. Yeah. Fair enough. Yeah. Oh, here's the thing, though. I've done some study on ancient Bajoran texts, and if there's mm. one thing I have learned, there's a very fine line between suffering and fruit. <laughs> Well, that, it kind of it depends on the fruit now, doesn't it? Yeah. Well, true. If you do eat some fruits, you will suffer. But, you know, it's either it's like feast or famine, right? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And uh, by the way, nice little callback. Major Kira there eating that fruit plate a very earth looking fruit. Look, there's some cantaloupe, some orange slices, some grapes. No hospirat in sight, but she is having that uh, fruit plate. Mm. Well, I mean, I guess Odo could have shape-shifted some hospital on the side just couldn't be eaten yeah right, there right. just to you, you complement just, her dish right exactly yeah just so she doesn't feel alone or uh you know self-conscious about it one thing i did notice throughout this entire episode is the the actors really understanding the nuances of their characters and i really loved when jake showed up worried for his father and then avery as as cisco just mm-hmm. kind of touches him on the face gives him that little punch in the arm I mm-hmm. think that that's just a nice shorthand that actors acquire over time with other actors. And I do think that it shows that Avery and, and Sorak had a very special relationship on and off camera. I agree, although I don't agree that that was a little punch on the arm. I was watching that. It was like, that that would hurt. Of course, I'm very delicate, but, you know. <laughs> <laughs> I just like, ow, hey, if we have to do 10 takes of this, don't do that, <laughs> okay? So I know that there's a point to why Cisco destroyed the artifact. That's obviously a plot point. But when you're watching this for the first time in real time, yeah. when he goes to the artifact, grapples with it philosophically in a way, then destroys it, what was the reason for that prior to that destruction? I just yeah. don't see it. And I'm like, oh, I was really, really into this right up until this point. Because... Yeah. Obviously, it's a an acceleration for the narrative to do something. Yeah, yeah I, I agree with you. And I, I feel like had this, of course, we don't know how many other drafts and how many different versions of the script uh, were going around. But I almost feel like that's something that could have, would have, should have been explored better in the first three acts, which is give give Cisco a little more turmoil. Like, is mm-hmm. this happening again where I'm going to have visions again? Are the pro- Let the prophet show up again more than once at the beginning there. Let right. him actually struggle with it. So it's almost like, okay, is this real or is this just madness coming on? I would have much preferred to have seen a bit of uh, struggle there. Oh, I do love this little uh, uh, interplay here, Odo and Worf. Odo says, you know, about leaving Kira behind Mm -hmm. uh, to be possessed. I had to respect Kira's wishes. And Worf says, if it were Dax, I'm not sure I could have done the same. And Odo says, just be grateful you didn't have to make that choice. (laughs) 
guess I didn't tell you that one story, right? Yeah. Ooh, ooh. So funny thing about logs that get deleted uh, or never get recorded to begin with because, you know what? Let's just skip it. Remember that mission where we were the only two that went on it and there was only one ship on the station and then I had to do that thing that got me in trouble? Remember that one? No, I didn't tell you that? Ah, forget it. mm, Yeah, don't worry about it. Yeah. So when Kira emerged, emerged from the temple with like lightning sparking from her fingertips and stuff like that, I hate I hate that I have to say it, but I have to bring this up. The only thing that really popped into my mind at that time was, there is no Kira, only Zul. Yes, yes. I had to. I had to. Yeah, it's so, it so strikingly comparative. Yeah, love it. <laughs> also, yeah. speaking of lightning, um, you know that you know, Quark was trying to gin up some business because it's been a little slow recently at Quark's. But I guess that he's going to go into the lost column because a lot of his glassware was destroyed by random lightning. That was a lot of glassware getting destroyed. I hope that yeah. they have some sort of like insurance replicator plan where you're just like, no, I, I lost a thousand nice bottles. I need to now replicate all of that. Thank you very much. And whatever liquid was in there, he probably lost mm-hmm. maybe some canar. I yeah. hope Warren wasn't hurt. Maybe, I don't know, he was traumatized, oh. so he won't speak for a while. Yeah, good point. I know. I love the bit of trivia where you said that it was uh, it was an option to have Kira and then Kai Win embody yeah. the the wraith and the prophet. But I really do like how Sarah kind of approached that that little neck tilt, kind of like I'm cracking my neck, getting ready for action. <laughs> right. Yeah. I mean, and the way he was dressed. You know, this isn't like you know um, you know uh, you know couch fabric Jake anymore. This is yeah. like Jake is slick. He's built. Yeah. He looked like a gunslinger. He right. Did. He did. I was just waiting yeah. for like some Ennio Morricone music to start, you know, <laughs> scoring the scene. That would have been awesome. Um, okay, so one thing that really, really, really bugged me. I dig the reason why it had to happen, but how exactly does Kaiwin access the Chronoton panel in Ops? Because aren't yeah. there like passwords and stuff? That just that that seems like a distinct oversight. That seems like something that uh, Captain Cisco will have to have a talk uh, with both Dax and Worf. And I'm like, uh, is she gone? Is she gone? Okay, can you please turn on two-factor authentication? Short version of the summary for those who missed it: Kaiwin came in like a reckoning ball, and now you have that song in your head, and you're welcome. We'll get right back to The Reckoning, but first, a word and a thank you to all of our Patreon followers over at patreon.com slash mission log. You know, Norman, uh, I really have to hand it to you and the, the rest of the team who have spearheaded our Discord. That is the most fun that I have on social media day after day, week after week. We have an incredible community there. Uh, You really nailed it when you called it a community. There's a lot of Star Trek talk, but we talk about our other interests, talk about food because, hey, it's me. And I love the friendships that we have found online in the uh, Mission Log Discord through Patreon. Well, one of the things that we were looking at when it came to giving our supporters uh, the robust amount of content that they deserve is this safe space where they can come together as a community of fans. And because of COVID, it helped us accelerate this program because not a lot of our fans were able to make it to conventions to see their friends in person. So we've been able to give everybody that is a supporter on Patreon the opportunity to at least stay in touch with everybody, to create new friends and to create new foundations 
for future friendships when we ever get a chance to see them again in person. So if that's if that is all that we were able to bring so far to Patreon, I think that that is something that we can be very proud of. But more so, we can be even more proud of the people who have brought such a positive energy to that community, and that is beyond our thanks. But wait, there's so much more, because not only has that community building really taken off, you get a lot as a Patreon follower. You get the unedited, unexpurgated videos of our recording sessions. You get early access to the episodes, also the unedited, uh, unexpurgated versions. And uh, there's new merchandise going out. There is just so much happening at Patreon. It really is a direct link to us and a direct link to the show. And uh, before we remind you again, patreon.com slash mission log, I want to say thank you to some of our newest patrons who have just recently signed up. There's Gnome, Elizabeth, John, Mike, Jonathan, Benjamin, David, Terry, Deanne, Thank you. Thank you all so much. It means the world to us to have you join us there. Like John said, thank you, everybody that has supported us, that have come on board. And of course, thank you to everybody that has been supporting us since the very beginning. And if you would like to get more information on how to join the community, please visit patreon.com slash mission log. Again, that is patreon.com slash mission log. All right. The Reckoning. You know, from the beginning, I mentioned that about the stone. Here, here's Cisco saying, uh, well, the, the prophets want the stone here. And Wynn saying, oh, how do you know? And Cisco saying, it's prophet stuff. You, you wouldn't understand because you don't talk to the prophets. You worship <laughs> them, stuff. though. So uh, I guess you just have to take my word for it because you worship them. And I'm the one talking to the prophets and you're not. <laughs> I mean... Mm-hmm. Look, snap. Yeah, we're all in Cisco's camp here. We're all behind Cisco. Well, I mean, except for some of his more morally uh, dubious uh, choices. But at least in this instance, I'm on Cisco's side. But here again is the problem with just saying, ah, well, it, it's God's will, if that's your excuse. I, I mean, also, I, I do have to think that because Cisco found it pretty easy to lie to the Romulans. It is now way easier for him to lie to Kai Wen. It's a good thing she doesn't know about that with the Romulans, because she'd just be like, oh, are you lying to me? Like you lied to Vrenak? <laughs> so, and he does not have the upper hand anymore at all. But the interesting thing is, is that um, in, in looking at that, uh, in his behavior from in the pale moonlight to now, mm-hmm. that is... He kind of leveled up, right? He yeah. learned a little bit. He has a little bit more experience in that, in that kind of subterfuge. But here's the interesting thing about taking a religious high ground. It's that someone will claim it's the prophets or it's God's will in this case. But the other side of the equation will also take that same stance. Kai Wen always takes that stance. And now Cisco takes that stance. And Kai Wen said, well, I'm the spiritual leader of our people. And then Cisco will say, well, I'm the spiritual figurehead of our people. So they're literally on the same side when it comes to faith. But who is that faith serving? Well, see, that's always the interesting dilemma about how faith works in, in cases like that, which is, sure, you could stack 
one religious tradition against another religious tradition and go, oh, okay, well, they have opposing views on things because they're coming from completely different traditions. But when it's internal, and so far we only know that Bajorans just have one religion and, and essentially the same or similar set of beliefs, but within that, just like on Earth, you have people driven by ego, driven by uh, personal gain, driven by you know, uh, political motivation, whatever, and all using that same excuse to get what they want. And I, I think that definitely is one of the most interesting things about having a character like Kai Wen, having some of the more benevolent representatives that we've met along the way, like Beryl, uh, to kind of temper that so we know that they're not all horrible. Kaiopaka. Kaiopaka. Go way back. Yeah, Kaiopaka is wonderful. And it, and it still breaks my heart that she's still stuck on that planet where she can't, she can't come back and set things right. But yeah, I, I do think that's one of the more interesting, nuanced uh, views that DS9 has about religion. It's not just about well, let's explore what that faith is and where they got it right or where they got it wrong. It's the people who make it up and how do they either express or abuse that faith. Um, and like you said, that is the central problem is that when you say, well, we're just going to chalk it up to faith, you have no way to discern between one person and another who's telling the truth or who's got it accurate. You know? Have you been reading my notes, John? I, I haven't. <laughs> this is all rattling around in my head. But here, I, I will come back to it because I, I want to uh, add on to this. Um, that we only got a hint of it at that conversation between uh, Bashir and Odo, uh, where they're, you know, Quark's bringing them drinks. And uh, Bashir says uh, about prophecies, you know, it's a tangle of vague contradictions, speaking specifically about Bajoran prophecies. And Odo's attitude is just prepare for the worst. That's, uh, you know, no matter what it is. And and I get it. I, I definitely get Bashir's side on this because prophecies are essentially useless unless they are unambiguous and not open to interpretation. You know, a prophecy is just if you've got 10 different people who read 10 different things into it, it can no longer be considered a prophecy. It's just a thing that you interpret post hoc. So in that case, I will definitely uh, side with Odo here saying, well, you just you, you got to prepare for the worst. You know, they are at war and they need to be prepared for whatever happens, because clearly the prophets have taken an interest in that as well, ever since uh, Cisco decided to involve the prophets in the war. <laughs> Right. And that goes back to like what Oda was saying, like, you know, it would be helpful if, you know, they would like give us a, an actual plan so we can understand what's going on and then we can fulfill their needs as well as fulfilling our needs. And but, mm -hmm. you know, Kira says, well, that's that's what happens when you don't have faith. And Oda's like, <laughs> OK, <Yeah>. I guess. <laughs> right. Yeah. 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 Um, and, and I do, you know, I, I'm going to point out obvious here uh, but it's kind of fun obvious to me and that is that the reckoning in this story is the placeholder for what we might earthbound call the rapture depending on your faith tradition and uh, I have to admit that I, I, I take great pleasure in following the many many predictions about the end of the world because they are centered around prophecy and interpretation, which again is all vague. Um, if you're keeping score at home, 
and I don't know if you are or not, so I'll help you out here. But if you're keeping score at home, and if you're not, literally none of them have ever come true. Uh, like UK didn't come through? Yeah, yeah. Sorry, sorry. No, no, none of those, uh, yeah, they didn't actually come true. Uh, now, now uh, until one does, though, and at that point, we won't be here to talk about it. But you won't be here to listen to it either. So, you know. That's a shame. You, yeah, so, so you're fine. You're, you're fine. You can just li- live your life until that point. Um, in this episode specifically, though, I, I have a hard time understanding the point of the battle between the Prophet and the Paw Wraith. I mean, it's pretty isolated to the two of them. I mean, you know, sure, they're interested in Bajor, and you've got earthquakes and floods happening down there, but it, it, it's about as consequential as two world armies doing battle over an anthill. You know, this is really about them. And so far, if we're just sort of assuming, well, Cisco asked for a favor. So the favor we're going to ask back is that uh, we're going to mess up the promenade deck uh, by shooting lightning bolts at each other. I think Cisco still got the better part of the deal. Almost lost his son in the process. I get it. But he also had faith that the prophets would look out for him if it weren't for that meddling Kai win. But this is our ant hill, and these are our beans, John. It's <laughs> worth fighting for. Yes, yes. No, I understand what you're saying. And you know what? It, the, the strange thing is about, like I said, the interpretation of faith-based systems is that when you have a handful of people, especially a handful of people that have ulterior motives, mm-hmm. then they will, you know, they will weaponize those faith-based systems or turn them into some type of industry that serves their purposes. I'll get that into a little bit. Um, yeah. There is a little bit of um, a, a nice study of people that are supposed to act as you say and not as you do this time as opposed to what you've said before is like mm-hmm. do as you say in- instead of not as you do mm-hmm. so I've always believed okay so let me let me dial this back to a specific quote here when Kira said to to Cisco she said the Kai is jealous of you and your relationship with the prophets I'm a little envious myself and Cisco says why Kira says, you speak with the prophets, they listen to you, that's a rare gift. Mm -hmm. And then Kira also says that, I guess that's why I don't resent you, but the Kai does. Um, She kind of bookends that with saying, uh, you defied the will of the prophets, you did it because you couldn't understand the fact that the human and infidel had a stronger faith than you. The emissary was willing to sacrifice his own son to serve the prophets. We're getting into that um, Abraham and Isaac type of, you know, biblical story. Which, which, by the way, I have a huge problem with, but but, please go ahead. But it's very similar to that. Absolutely, yeah. And then Kaiwin says, my faith is as pure as the emissaries. And Kira says, I think you're confusing faith with ambition. So it really kind of colors... Yeah. That was a great piece of I, that writing. That is a by the great way, piece of writing, right? Yeah, and I think it does color this this particular debate of spiritual leaders being leadership for people. But when you really think about it, they're just the same type with their own ambitions. Mm-hmm. But they also have human failings, just like all of us. They have envy. They have jealousy. They are self-serving in nature. Uh, you know. Um, when you have that kind of leadership that is uh, kind of uh, covering their ulterior motives with this this piety, yeah. then how do you really trust your own religious and spiritual leaders when they're using that for their own personal gain, right? You know, um, I mean, Kai Wen said that she respects the emissary, but she goes behind his back mm-hmm. and contacts the two 
highest level authorities over Cisco in this matter because her feelings were hurt. Yeah. Because she's not getting the way that she believes that she is entitled to. Yeah. You know, a life of servitude, a life of service, a life of sacrifice. And all of a sudden this guy comes in and says, I'm the emissary. I didn't want it, but hey, I got the role that you want. So... Who is this spiritual leader really serving anymore? We'll see. And, and now you sort of set me up to drag out my humanistic soapbox. And uh, I, I, not nearly as big a soapbox as I've had in past episodes. It's okay. You don't have to fast forward <laughs> through this. You know? um, but, but no, you're right. You know, I, I think what's important is that you look at something like that and you, first of all, start by stripping away that layer of... Uh, faith tradition or whatever, and you can look at individual human beings and say, well, people are capable of good behavior, bad behavior. People are capable of being motivated by good motivators or bad motivators. And some of those are entirely self-serving. Some of those are a little more altruistic and uh, benevolent toward others. That exists regardless, wherever they're coming from. What gets really ugly is that then even when you have people who uh, are motivated by the the best of circumstances, motivated by the best of intentions for others, who maybe put that to work in a faith tradition, it then becomes very difficult to separate that out from people who are using the same language and abusing those faith traditions because they're motivated by other things. There's not an objective way to then come in and look at the two and go, oh, but wait, that one's doing it. Uh, you know, that, that one is expressing it correctly because they said a certain number of faith-based words. You know, that that's absolutely where it becomes this ugly, <laughs> very difficult problem, even for the people who have the absolute best of intentions and follow their hearts. Uh, unfortunately, their hearts can lead them to some really unfortunate places here. Well, I think sometimes, you know, in the end, you know, they just kind of, they, they uh, resign to the fact that they're only human. They get, you know, they get uh, confused with certain human urges, you know, certain human needs. Yeah. Um, as, as much as their faith tries to purify them from that, that, that only goes so far. But I kind of like wanted to switch um, mm-hmm. something to a little bit more uh, science fiction and philosophical. All right. So there is a certain logic or a, cir- a circular logic that the prophets have when, he, when they uh, brought their vision to Cisco. You know, they say that, you know, the Cisco of Bajor will not waver. He'll bring the reckoning. <laughs> it will be the end or the beginning. It's very, very convoluted. But it's not something that's uh, atypical of science fiction. So in science fiction and um especially, say, in Ron Moore's Battlestar Galactica, now Ron Moore being one of the principal writers, you know, for Deep Space Nine, there is kind of like this axiom of all this has happened before and all this will happen again. That's kind of like what the prophets are getting at. So it begs the question here, and I'm getting very kind of Star trek about this. All right. So have the wormhole aliens who exist outside of what we understand as linear space-time, if they, in fact, have given the Bajorans artifacts and orbs to help the Bajoran people... Uh, and give them guidance and direction over thousands of years, millennia, if uh, if if you want to call it that, is it possible that the the prophets themselves are what the Bajorans will eventually become in their far future? So, 
they will become incorporeal beings, much like, you know, we've seen in Star Trek, like the Metrons, or the providers in Gamma 2, the disembodied brains and gamesters of Triskelion, or the Q, right? Mm -hmm. Now they have the ability, these future incorporeal prophets who were once mortal Bajorans, now they have the, the ability to traverse space-time, go back in time, and guide the destinies of their primitive selves in order to secure their own future. Yeah. That's where I think that, that this, the possibility of this is going, because why would the prophets care? Yeah. If, in fact, they weren't protecting the evolution of their own people to get to becoming the prophets to start that cycle again. I, I, I can see that, and, and I can see that being, um, yeah, it, it makes logical sense, although if they've gotten that far, it seems like they should be leaving themselves better clues, um, you know, if, if they actually can traverse time and space as they do, they could actually be a little more clear about it. And I understand there's an argument to be made that, okay, well, we don't want to completely interfere with their free will, but, uh, we, you know, we could at least sort of lay out those guideposts in a little more clear way. I also think that if you were to take that out of the equation and say, well, they're not necessarily the evolved state of the Bajorans as we know them, I do want to think that as species evolve and can actually last that long, that they have lasted that long because they have a benevolent streak in them, or a, at least an altruistic streak, where they understand that their survival and their growth is as important as survival and growth of those around them. I think that's maybe a little more pleasant way to look at it than the other option, which is that uh, it's just a science experiment for them. And they're just, <laughs> you know, that that's the third option is just that, uh, well, they, you know, they're, they're basically growing this in a Petri dish that we'll call Bejor. That's the interesting thing about fixed faith-based systems that believe that fate has been predetermined. Yeah. Because if that's the case, then that everything that has, let me back up for a second. Let me, let me go kind mm -hmm. of like Avengers storyline timeline here. If you take one of those infinity crystals out of the timeline, it skews the timeline, put it back, it restores the timeline. So everything that all of the Bajorans have learned up until the point where they pass that information on in whatever form, those prophets will know that that has happened. So when they go back to the past to preserve the present and the future, all of that has already been written. Yeah. So they actually know that they will have to create these esoteric riddles for Cisco and Kai Wen to solve because they already know what the outcome is. Why would they have interfered with destroying the the, the army, uh, the Dominion army in the first place if they didn't know how this outcome was going to be? Exactly. They already know what's going on. Exactly. Right? But the thing is, is yeah. that as audiences, as say like from, from Cisco's point of linear time and everyone else's point of linear time since they're sharing that, they only see it from one dimension. But the, the prophets are playing it in, wait for this, John? Yep. Three-dimensional <gasps> chess. Whoa, not chess, but in three dimensions? In three dimensions. Wow. Yes. Okay. Yeah, those, yeah. Uh, those wormhole aliens are pretty advanced then. Another thing that I liked about this episode was the skepticism and a little bit of the irreverence that Bashir brought into the discussion about prophecy and religion. Mm -hmm. If you... If you uh, like I said, if you take score, if you're paying attention, Dax and Bashir, the two major science officers on the station, are very much against 
any of these faith-based systems to the mm-hmm. point where they were using science in order to stop these spiritual forces. And it's where Cisco and Kai Wen actually kind of create a small alliance, even temporarily, to protect the prophets for being able to do what they want to do. Right. But in the end, Kai Wen chooses science over faith. So there is a little bit of healthy skepticism, I think, involved in this episode where they're looking at science and faith as different and definitely opposite sides yeah. of the same coin. Well, that goes back to what you were saying, particularly in the Kai Wen situation, is that, yes, I, I, I don't doubt that she has faith. Clearly, that is incredibly important to her. But she also has these personal motivations. And it either way, she'll be able to make a faith-based argument for why she let her personal motivations win the day. Um, I'm definitely Team Bashir in in this. You know, that that's the sort of my nature is that mm-hmm. I, I hear his argument and that's what would come out of my mouth too, which is to say, well, no, if you're going to make this claim, you're going to make it based on a 30,000-year-old artifact about aliens who won't communicate with us directly. And the claims are surely open to interpretation, then you better have some other objective standard by which we can measure what's happening, you know? Because uh, that was there too. I mean, yeah, 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 yeah. You know, yeah, 100%. shoving the wormhole aliens back at Cisco. Yep, and saying like, "Hey, remember when you were on board with that term?" Yeah, yeah, and you can actually talk to them <laughs> again. Like, do we lose sight of this each time? Like Cisco, you can actually talk to. Them. You could hop in a shuttle. You could just go into the wormhole and say, "Okay." Look, you helped us with the invading army, which you already would have known about anyway. You already would have known that they were going to overtake Bajor anyway, because you can already tell the future, and supposedly you care about Bajor anyway. Can we at least talk about what's happening here? In my head canon, Cisco breaks the stone open outside his dad's restaurant in New Orleans. The life form inside takes over the tuba section of a passing Dixieland jazz band, and that's how you get to parades. All right, Norman, here we are, standing at opposite ends of the promenade deck, staring each other down. The wind machines are blowing. This is where we end up, mano y mano to decide if we like an episode of Star Trek or not, and then pick it apart for morals, meanings, messages. So as we do, I'm going to kick it over to you first to ask you, did the episode hold up for you? What do you think of it? And then we'll pick it apart for those three M's. My child. Oh, John. Thank you for that wonderful setup. But I have to ask you, who was that setup for? Was that for me or was that for you? <laughs> really? Okay. Anyway, it was, I know it that. It was for you. It was, yeah, in this okay, case, for sure. All right. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, so, you know, the interesting thing is, is that I am mostly on board with this episode. I enjoy stories that posit the questions that need answering, but I like questions that are also really difficult to reconcile because those questions just... They they just inspire larger and more complicated answers to those questions that lead to even further questions. I love it when those things just cascade from one question to another question to another question. That means that 
we're not ans- we're not answering it specifically. We are, but we're also uh, uncovering even more information, more truths mm-hmm. about things that you know that may or may not have been discussed. So, Inquisition and the Pale Moonlight, the two episodes that we just recently covered, they're very straightforward. You know, they're very dark. Yeah. You know, they have a very specific narrative. We have, uh, <laughs> we have, you know, expressed our opinions about. We, those we had and, one or two comments th- about those. Sure, yeah, yeah. So I'm, uh, I'm going to push that soapbox okay. over to the All side. Right. But I really do appreciate kind of like what the writers were doing here in Reckoning. I really enjoyed this power struggle between Cisco as the emissary and Kai Wen. And I said this before, and I'll say it again. I absolutely love the Kai Wen character. I love Louise Fletcher and her performance. I love the fact that when she comes on board, everyone's hairs collectively stand up on end. Mm-hmm. But the thing is, is that as performers, as actors, they have really found a wonderful acting cadence in their timing and how they react to each other. I think that, that is, uh, their relationship here is about as polished as I've ever seen it. But where this episode falls short for me, though, is the back end of the episode. I love this episode right up until the point where Cisco destroys the artifact. Mm. And... It just seems that that was written in to ramp up the tension in the story. It's very obvious. Like, the story was very philosophical, uh, you know, uh, very, uh, I, I guess, uh, they, they tried to study the motivations of where Cisco was as the emissary, his struggle with it, Jake's struggle with his father, and all of a sudden, I'm going to wake up and just be angry and destroy a 30,000-year-old artifact because... And that just kind of really just burst the bubble for me. Yeah. Uh, but I also think that the the introduction of the Pa Wraith was very interesting. I like the fact that uh, you know there was there's this kind of Lucifer esque kind of power out there in the universe. But I think that where this story could have really benefited from was actually being a two parter. Mm-hmm. I think that if it were opened up to be a two parter, it would have had the breathing room to explore a little bit more of why Cisco decided to do what he did. That should have been the end of the first part of the two-part. Him going yeah. to that, that, you know, him going to Dax's station and destroying the artifact and letting these energies out. Um, why did they choose Kira? Why did they choose Jake? Um, obviously, they were there at the excavation site when they found that artifact, so it would have been interesting to explore a little bit more of their direction in the episode. Kira's faith and Jake's doubting and why they were the perfect vessels for these two spiritual powers to be able to inhabit. I think that that would have been really interesting. Yeah. So, you know, I, I, I really, really do enjoy this episode quite a bit for the, the elements that it presents, but I just think that they crammed too much information, and it was a little too ambitious for, what, 48, 49 minutes. You know, hearing you say that, that, that kind of... It doesn't change my feeling about the episode, but I like what you said about really appreciating everything up until the point that he destroys the tablet. Because now in retrospect, I look at it and go, yeah, that's where I lost interest as well. Yes, there is an in-universe explanation. Okay, Cisco is being motivated by either the Pa Wraith or the Prophets or whatever. He, he feels compelled to do this. But we didn't, I, I don't feel like that was an earned moment. So 
everything before that, yes, starts to build a much more interesting story. And maybe if that had been turned into a two-parter, as you suggest, that could have saved uh, this episode some of the problems later. I, I will say this, you know, I love how this episode lays bare some inherent problems with beliefs, some beliefs, uh, using faith as an excuse. Wynn and Cisco can both claim to do what's in the best interests of Bajor and what is the will of the prophets, but they are still influenced by emotion, uh, professional, political agendas, what have you. And, and that is the, that's the important part of the character study that's happening up until that point. What I do not love here, and pretty much ever, is stories about supernatural possessions that lead to our characters shooting energy balls out of their hands and staring intently through contact lenses and talking through a voice synthesizer. There's wind machines and screaming, and I, I just feel left out of it at that point. I'm no longer connected to the story. And and I get it. I it, it's sure it's a test of faith for people around, and we showed the difference between Cisco and uh, Win through that, which we honestly already knew. <laughs> Fine, I just prefer a little more sci in my sci-fi. So this episode, where it winds up in Acts four and five, is not for me. So. Captain's Log Supplemental, the spirit shot fireballs at each other, and that hurts some people. But uh, here we are now. Jake's fine. End, end of episode. So, but look, that, that all said, I'm still very interested in Cisco's journey and in what statements DS9 is trying to make about religion and faith and duty and personal character and morality and values, etc. Honestly, that is great fodder for a show. This episode in particular, though, was not that. It was some quality bickering between Wynn and Cisco, and some quality bickering between Wynn and Kira. It just, when we get to that point of shooting fireballs at each other, it just feels like a longer diversion from the rest of the story. And I don't love that about this episode. And honestly, because of that, I feel like we covered the interesting stuff in the last segment. If we really want to pick apart the problem with using prophecy as a guide, the problem with using faith as, a, in many cases here, a, a cudgel, that's all interesting stuff to explore. But I don't think this episode, to me anyway, came down with the message. If I'm being cynical and I say, hey, look, always have a chronoton emitter to kill your gods when you need to, okay. And no password security. No, yeah, yeah, please. Two-step verification, people. Um, mm -hmm. we, we've talked about that. And I'm just going to go back to a line that you pointed out before. This exchange between Kira and Wynn, which I thought was great. Wynn saying, my faith is as pure as the emissaries. And Kira saying, I think you're confusing faith with ambition. I'm glad that we both wrote down that little exchange mm -hmm. of dialogue. I think that's really, if you're just to do an episode about that, I think I would be completely and 100% on board. Um, it is Wynne's perversion of faith that has gotten her to this point. And she isn't able to tell the difference between faith in those 
beliefs, about her religious tradition, and her actual personal ambitions, which seem to be wrapped up in ideas of power and jealousy and all these other things. She's such a good arguer, though, that she will lay waste to anybody who challenges her on it. So then where do you land? Well, you land at a place that somebody like Bashir or me coming in saying, if we only had an objective standard where we could tell that what you're saying has some truth validity to it or not, then we'd be done. We'd be done with that part of the conversation. So that is interesting space to explore for me, for DS9, I hope for our listeners. Um, but I think this episode, in its attempt to have a conversation about faith and belief and the perversion of that faith, ended up deciding well let's have special effects for the last act <laughs> and, and let's yeah, just stop there yeah, yeah yeah and i think that yeah. undermines the exploration here of those morals meanings messages but i mm -hmm. feel like you liked this episode a little bit more than i did or at least the attempts that this episode was trying to make a little more than i did so bring us home norman what do you feel about the uh the messages morals meanings in this well, I mean, to 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 enter this, uh, this this final part of the of the podcast as kind of like a confessional, a confessional the Catholics know very well, <laughs> and it's my Catholic upbringing that I think, and and the shedding of that that I think that I found uh, very connected with this episode because, as a Catholic, as a former Catholic, or as a former belief systems supporter mm -hmm. in a way. You know, uh, the more that I study, the more I realize that, you know, certain things in these belief systems just don't hold true for me anymore when I challenge those systems for myself and, and the powers that be. And it's mm -hmm. because the interpretation of belief systems and the enigmatic path that we've created for these systems, how do I put it? How do I consolidate this in one mm -hmm. idea? Faith is a very sharp, three-edged sword mm -hmm. based on one's interpretation of the science of that faith or the converse interpretation of that same faith. And then there's that third edge, the actual truth of those signs and prophecies and whether or not they hold or have any meaning at all, if they were just left undiscovered and uninterpreted. So as a human race, and I think about this a lot, actually uh, having thought about a lot of uh, Gene Roddenberry's quotations about humanity mm -hmm. and the human race and moving forward into the future. We heap a lot of our own uncertainty and self-doubt about our existence, about our nature, about our reason for being, about our belief systems that are as endless as, say, the ocean hmm. or the horizon. Because it's that infinite space where we feel that we aren't alone. And meaning that in somewhere in our nature, there is or several or hundreds of millions of people that are placing that very specific part of their existence in the hands of a power that is far greater than any individual person. And for many, that can be comforting that there is something in that infinite space that is connective at our most primal human level. It's a very basic and powerful need that we all need to be part of or tap into that's greater than ourselves. It's in this very philosophy where I find faith to be assuring or reassuring for those who need it or for those who need it to get through the course of mundane existence. Mm -hmm. It's those who capture and mold 
the faith, this faith or that faith into, into instruments of influence, of power, of control. This is where I come to a very specific and very cynical observation of faith. Very much like what Kai Wynn is doing in this episode or has done in her appearances. And this is where I believe that this is what is illustrated in this particular episode. Cisco is struggling with one aspect of his faith in the prophets, i.e. trying to interpret what they want from him. Kai Wynn is struggling with why an outsider who hasn't served as faithfully as she has is the chosen of her gods. Kira is the one whose faith has placed her in the middle of the struggle because she leans and depends on her faith, not for power, not for influence, and not really for guidance for the most part, but to ground her in that world where everything is just unstable. Mm. So in my final analysis, does faith manage the needs of the many or the needs of the few? Or does it serve the needs or the will of the one? And it begs even more questions like this. Who gives that one person or a collective of individuals the right to interpret the faith for millions in a way that serves their needs and their purposes and focuses it into one direction while there are maybe other, perhaps infinite, numbers of ways that these signs, these portents, these prophecies, these artifacts can be interpreted because this is how mortal, mortal interpretations of experiences and their past influences help interpret these clues left behind in the past. And maybe if there were a more clear roadmap, like Odo said, maybe there would be a better way to interpret these faiths. But let's look at this realistically. These faith-based observations that have turned into influences, that have turned into these governing bodies of power, they're just basically made by somebody who basically found them and at one point in time were written down by people who were asking themselves the same questions philosophically at one point in time and just wrote those down for people to find, then interpret, then turn into these types of influences over the people that they have found that support that faith. If only those wormhole aliens could just make it a little more clear for everybody. Wouldn't have that question. Mission Log is produced by Roddenberry Entertainment. Executive producer, Rod Roddenberry. Our website and your opportunity to comment and connect with us is missionlogpodcast.com. If you'd like to support Mission Log directly, you can do so at patreon.com slash missionlog. And for more Star Trek news and discussion, be sure to visit trekmovie.com. On the next Mission Log, Valiant. Some of the music for Mission Log provided by Warp 11. Online at warp11.com. Special thanks to consulting producers, Adam Brusky, Homer Frizzell, Mike Richards, and Mike Schabel. That showdown has to be one of the weirdest things that's happened on the promenade. Well, maybe the weirdest thing since that emu showed up that one time.
end transmission. This is a Roddenberry podcast. For more great podcasts, visit podcast.roddenberry.com.